Yeah, we all know what it means to have trouble and opposition. We aren't any stranger to that. Sometimes our troubles get us down, don't they? Have your troubles had you down here as of late? Sometimes our our troubles cause cause us to stall, right? We kind of get paralyzed in fear, and we don't know how to move forward. Sometimes our our oppositions, our adversities cause us to withdraw, to go and hide, right? To go into a cave. Guys, sometimes we do this. We, we go into our man cave of our own, you know, in our own head. You know, we, we retreat and withdraw and, and isolate ourselves. And sometimes we just give up when we are facing opposition. Well, what we have seen in these early chapters of Acts, and as you read all the way through Acts, is that the early church was a church on the move. Uh, People were being saved by the thousands. Disciples were growing in maturity. The church was making an impact for Jesus Christ. They were simply following orders. They were simply doing what, what God had called them, Jesus Christ had ordered them to do, and they weren't doing it in their own power and in their own strength. They were operating by the Spirit's power. They were doing the mission. And in doing the mission... They came under fire. They faced opposition. They faced adversity. Hardship simply because of their faith in Jesus Christ and the gospel impact they were making in their community. You see, we aren't the only ones to experience trouble. That's a good reminder, isn't it? Have you ever gotten to a conversation with someone and you started hearing their troubles and their adversities and their hardships and thought, okay, I don't have any at this point. Everything I thought was opposition and adversity, it's gone. I I guess I don't really have any. The reality is, is that as we look back at the early church and what we, we see throughout history is that Christians have always faced opposition. There has always been adversity, be it individually like we're talking about or collectively as a church or universally as the big C church. And I believe that we can learn something from these believers in the early church about how we as individuals and how we collectively need to respond when we are up against opposition in our lives. We can learn how to be overcomers. So we're going to look at two things tonight. First of all, the bitter reality of opposition and then a biblical response to it, okay? The bitter reality of it and then a biblical response. So in Acts chapter 4, as we get into chapter 4, we find in verses 1 and, one and 2 that the religious authorities are annoyed They are annoyed with Peter and John because, man, they have just been down to the temple in chapter 3, and there was a guy there that was 40 years a cripple, and this guy got healed. This guy was made whole. That really annoyed these guys. Because not only did they heal this guy, but then they had the goal to stand up and to say that it was by Jesus' name... Jesus, whom they had crucified some time earlier, that it was through Jesus' name that this man had been healed. 
And so they have Peter and John arrested. That's what happens here in the first couple uh, verses of chapter 4. Remember, what are Peter and John doing? They're simply following orders. They're simply doing what Jesus Christ told them to do. Remember, they haven't committed a crime. They haven't done anything morally wrong. They did a good thing. (laughs) Guy had been a cripple. He was over 40 years old, his whole entire life. And they healed him in Jesus' name. And that got them arrested. Well, as you get into chapter 4 and verse number 5, they're, they're interrogated. Hey, by what name did you do this miracle? And Peter's response in verses 10 down to 12 is, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And Peter says, and by the way, There is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. It says there in verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Here's what I want you to know tonight. Salvation is available for everybody. I don't care what your background is. I don't know how bad you've been. I don't don't care what you've done. I want you to know that there is salvation and deliverance and forgiveness from your sin. You can be saved and your life can be transformed by Jesus Christ. We see that happening to to countless people in, in this book of Acts. And Peter says, it's by Jesus. There's only one Savior. And folks, tonight I want you to know there's still only one Savior. And his name is Jesus Christ. Well, the religious authorities in verse number 13, man, they're, they're looking at Peter and, man, his boldness. And they, they're like, man, this guy's not even trained. He wasn't trained in our schools. This guy's uneducated, you know? They, they, he, he didn't have the degrees like, like the, the religious authorities, the Sanhedrin, like they had. And so they're amazed by their boldness. And in verses 16 through 18 of chapter 4, they're like, what do we do with these guys? What do we do? It's obvious that the guy's been healed. I mean, everybody's known the guy. He's been around for 40 years. There's no way we can deny the fact that this guy has been genuinely healed. So let's do this. Let's threaten them. Let's tell them to shut their mouths. And they ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And that was just the beginning of the opposition. Soon thereafter, the religious authorities had the apostles arrested again and put in jail. If you go to chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, why were they arrested? Again, because they're teaching and preaching in Jesus' name. And many people, verse 14 says uh, that they were believing, and 15 and 16 says that, that many were being healed. And so verse 17 tells us that that the religious authorities, they're motivated by jealousy. And so they put them in jail. And that night in verse 19, the Bible says that an angel breaks them out of jail. The next day, when the authorities sent for them to come and stand before them, they they weren't in the jail. And so they began looking around town, and you know where they were? They were in the town, in the temple. What do you think they were doing? They were preaching and teaching in Jesus' name. Boy, that really ticked off the leaders. 
verse 30 through. It says they were enraged and they wanted to kill them. Had it not been for one of the old guys on that committee, man, they talked, he talked them down. He's like, hey, look, if this thing's of God, there's no way we're going to be able to stop this thing, right? And he, he wasn't implying that it was of God, but he had a good point. And so what did they do? In verse 40, they flogged them and they ordered them not to speak in Jesus' name and they released them. Well, it only gets worse from there because it tells us in, in chapter 6 and verse number 7 that as the, as the gospel spread and as the number of disciples in Jerusalem continued to grow, that there were men such as this guy named Stephen in chapter 6, verses 5 and 8. He was a guy who was full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit, full of grace and full of power, and he was performing these great wonders and signs among the people. And by the time you get to chapter 6 and verse 9, what does it say? It says, opposition arose. Opposition arose. And they began to argue with Stephen. But they couldn't stand up to Stephen's wisdom. He was speaking by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so what it says in verse 11 is they secretly persuaded some to make false accusations against Stephen. And this incited the mob. And they drag him out of town. And they're ready to stone him. And, and, and Stephen preaches this message in chapter 6 this, and 7. This, this powerful message. This powerful message. And it says in chapter 7, verses 54, 57, and 58, that they were enraged, and they gnashed their teeth at him. And they yelled at the top of their voices, covering their ears, and together they rushed against him, and they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And Stephen becomes the first martyr. And that begins a firestorm of opposition against the church. Following Stephen's martyrdom, uh, the storm of persecution broke out against the church. Church members were uh, driven out of town and they were chased. It says in chapter 8 and verse number 1 that Saul, who would later become the Apostle Paul, agreed to putting him, that Stephen, to death. And on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the, the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. It says in verse 3, Saul, however, was ravaging the church. And he would enter house after house and drag off men and women and put them in prison. Do you get the picture? They were facing some severe opposition, some severe persecution. You know, in some ways, the church is like a magnet for opposition and adversity because spiritual warfare is at play right? This is what the scripture tells us. Look, I'm not suggesting that we adopt this disposition that there's a demon behind every problem. I don't think we should do that. But we all are certain, and because we're, we're all certainly capable of creating our own problems, right? Sometimes we create more problems for ourselves than the devil has a chance to. 
The truth is, however, we do know that the enemy does not want any church to prevail. And so he is going to stand against the church. He's going to champion anything that will, sh- will short-circuit the, the church's progress. And so for the past 2,000 years, Satan has been opposing God's people, and he's been opposing the church. And Peter reminds us of this. Later, when he wrote the, the epistle of 1 Peter, he wrote this. He said, your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone to devour. We are in a spiritual struggle. And Paul wrote about it in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12 where he says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against uh, the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of darkness, against evil, spiritual forces in the heavens. Church, any time the gospel advances, any time there are, there are open doors for effective ministry, any time a church is on the move, you can expect, we can expect opposition. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 16, 9. He says, a, a wide door for effective ministry has opened for me, yet many oppose me. And that word oppose there. Uh, means to be hostile toward, to be an opponent, to be an adversary. And we know that throughout Paul's entire ministry, man, he faced opposition. We read about it. And he was flogged and beaten with rods on numerous occasions. He was imprisoned on numerous occasions. He was stoned once, left for dead. They thought he was dead. Almost everywhere he went to preach, an angry mob, Jewish mob, was fighting against him, be it verbally or physically. There there was always opposition against Paul, and eventually Paul was beheaded by the Roman emperor Nero. Early church writings contained various accounts of how the early apostles died. Acts tells us, Acts 12 tells us that James, the brother of John, was killed by a sword. Peter was sentenced to death by crucifixion, but requested to be hung upside down, feeling unworthy to face death in the same manner as his master. Andrew was crucified. Thomas was killed by a sword. James the lesser was thrown down from the temple. Simon the zealot was crucified. Judas Thaddeus was beaten to death. Matthias, who replaced Judas, was stoned and beheaded. The apostle John, though not martyred, was said to have been scarred by boiling oil. And I just quickly read over those, but you understand that those were horrific, violent deaths for those men. We just ramble them off and they roll off our tongue. But those were horrific, violent deaths for those men. But they willingly laid down their lives preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, after a few hundred years, the church of, of, of facing severe opposition by the Romans, there was an estimated, there was an estimated two million Christians that were martyred in the Roman Empire. That's a low figure. Two million, think about that. History records all the the gory details. Believers suffered terrible abuse, horrific forms of torture, violent deaths. 
In Lyons, uh, in the south of France, in the year 177, the church came under fierce opposition and believers were being arrested and tortured. Uh, The emperor at the time, Marcus Aurelius, ordered Christians to be, uh, and I quote, put to death whether they're Roman citizens or not, but to dismiss all those who renounce their faith. Why? Because it was an attempt to try to appease the Roman gods. He was under the impression that, that the, 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 the heathen gods, the Roman gods, were, were angry at the moderation of the earlier uh, emperors and that they had shook the east with earthquakes and sent ravaging fires uh, into the west, that they had caused the Tiber to flood Rome and carry away homes and, and livestock, and that they had uh, brought pestilence upon, uh, uh, upon the nation that was basically, they said, it's going to lay waste to the world, the, the pestilence. I mean, bad things were happening, and the emp- some of these emperors thought, well, it's the gods are angry, and it's because of the Christians. And so an, an assault broke out against the church, largely the work of mobs. And they would suddenly burst into known Christians' homes, and, and they would begin to spoil and destroy. All their objects of value were, were seized, and they would take anything, uh, even just cheap wooden pieces of furniture, and they'd take it out into the street. If it wasn't of value, they would burn it in the, in the street. And yet the Christians seemed to have, no, have made no armed resistance. In Lyons at the time, lived a, a Christian slave girl, a, a girl by the name of Blandina. History records that she was tortured from morning till night, that she was scourged and, and gashed, seared, hung on a cross in the theater, kept in jail for another day, then put into a hot wire cage and thrown to wild beasts. This all happened in just a short period of time. Her young brother, her young brother says, was nerved by her courage. In the circus, before a noisy crowd, it says that she seemed heedless of a growling lion. It was said that the lions didn't even touch her. And so what they did was they put her in a net. They suspended her in a net by a rope and they unleashed a mad bull on her who tossed her into the air, and yet she remained alive. And so they ran her through with a sword. That's just one out of hundreds of thousands, millions of Christians who suffered much the same fate yet. By 200, the gospel had permeated most of the regions of the Roman Empire. There's a map up on the screen. Church didn't retreat. Church didn't withdraw. Church didn't go and hide. The church continued to advance. Tertullian, one of the the first great apologists of the church, lived in Carthage uh, from 155 to 220 AD, and he wrote this at the time. He said, The state is filled with Christians. They are in the fields, in the citadels, in the islands, both sexes, every age and condition, even high rank, are passing over to the Christian faith. We have filled every place belonging to you, cities, islands, castles, towns, assemblies, your very camp, your tribes, companies, palace, senate, forum. 
We leave to you your temples alone. We can count your armies. Our numbers in a single province will be greater. We have it in our power without arms and without rebelling to fight against you with, with the weapon of a simple divorce. We can leave you to wage your wars alone. If such a multitude should withdraw into some corner of the world, you would doubtless tremble at your own solitude and ask, of whom are we the governors? What is he talking about? He's talking about that by the year 300, I mean, at his lifetime and beyond that, for another 100 years, that while the church was being persecuted, the gospel spread. While the church was facing opposition, they didn't retreat, they continued to advance. They continued to move the gospel forward. And it's been estimated that in the Roman Empire, there were some 7 million Christians. That's a low number as well. Some say it was, the number would be higher than that, maybe even triple that if it's closer to 15% of the, of the population of the Roman Empire. But you get the picture? They were facing opposition of the severe, in the severest sense, and yet they continued to move forward. So we can learn something, don't you think we can from these folks? Don't you think we can? So what is the biblical response to opposition? What's a biblical response? How should we respond? What can we learn from these early disciples, from these early Christians, from the, the church in Acts, and, and from men like Peter and his epistle in First Peter, what can we learn from them on how to respond when we personally face opposition or when we collectively as a church face opposition? We know that we are facing opposition. We experience that in our personal lives. We know that as a church, as we advance forward, with the mission that God has given us to do, we can expect, that's not going to be an easy road, we can expect that there's going to be opposition along the way. So what do we do? How do we handle that? Well, let me give you first a wrong response. A wrong response. A wrong response would be outrage, anger. We have to be careful about this because we're Americans, right? Right? We love our freedoms. Can I get an amen? amen? I love my freedoms, right? I appreciate those who have served in our, our military, some of you guys who have served in our military, and, and you fought for our freedoms. Blood has been shed for our freedoms. I'm thankful that I live in a country where I can worship. We can gather like this and worship freely. We don't have to worry about you know, soldiers coming in here and taking us out and beheading us tonight. may come to that one day, but it, we're not there yet. Praise God right? But as Americans, we can sometimes, as, as Christian Americans, we can get angry when we sense opposition from, from those that we should just expect opposition from. We shouldn't expect Satan and, and his crowd, we shouldn't expect them to be cheering when the mission, when the gospel is advancing. But we shouldn't be angry. We shouldn't fear. That's another wrong response. Confusion right? We don't have to be confused. We can understand from the scripture why we are facing what we are facing. 
Sometimes a wrong response would be nostalgia, like, oh, I just, I wish it was like the good old days, you know, back in the 40s when everybody was a Christian, you know, and the whole country, we all, we had great president, you know, we, we can, we could just resort to yesteryear. That's not really the right response either. Peter knew what it was like to face opposition. Remember what he did when, when he was at Christ's arrest? Trial, that is. What did he do? Well, he lashed out. He took his sword out and tried to take off the high priest's servant's ear, took, took his ear off, right? And then when, later when he was there at the fire warming himself and Jesus was being interrogated, what did he do? He got angry, he cursed. I don't know that guy. That was the wrong response to opposition. He drew back in fear like the other apostles. But not only did he know what it was to respond wrong, he was restored in love, and then he boldly stepped out with courage. That's what we see in Acts. That's what we read in 1 Peter. Later in his life, he wrote this letter of 1 Peter to follow right, to to sufferers who are following Jesus, people who were facing opposition, who were scattered throughout the region. He was writing with them, and he was teaching them how to respond uh, as a Christian to opposition. opposition. So so here, if you might mark these things down or go on on our website there and and, um, take some notes there, and you can email them to yourself at the end. But we need to understand this and, and follow this when we face opposition. So here it is, number one. What's the right response? Number one, don't be surprised or scared. Don't be surprised or scared. In Acts, the apostles aren't shocked, right? As you read five and six and seven as they're facing, we don't, we don't get any sense of, oh my goodness, what is going on? They expected it. Peter speaking to the religious authorities, he quotes the Old Testament, speaking of Jesus. This is chapter 4 and verse 11, if you're still in Acts, and he says, this Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders. Right? Jesus told them that he would be rejected. Jesus told them to expect opposition because he said that just in the same way Jesus taught them, if the world hates you, understand it hated me first. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In Luke 21, Jesus said, they're going to lay their hands on you. They're going to hand you over to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. Don't be surprised when you face opposition as a Christian. Peter later wrote in the verses up here on the screen in 1 Peter 4.12, Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeals come among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3.12, All who want to live a godly life will be persecuted. So let's not be surprised. Let's not be surprised when as a church we face opposition as we try to advance the cause of Christ, the mission that Jesus has for us here in this community. We're going to face it. Let's not be surprised. Let's not be scared. 
Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 4, it's there on the screen, do not fear, do not fear them or be intimidated. You know, as, we, as you read Acts 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, you don't get any sense that Peter and John and the apostles and the early Christians were intimidated. Right? They were intimidated. They spoke boldly. They just continued to, to follow orders. That is what we are to do. So number one, don't be surprised or scared. Number two, number two, trust God and do good. Trust God and do good. How did the early church respond to opposition? Well, it says in chapter 4 and verse 24, if you still have your Bible open there to chapter 4, verse 24, they raised their voices together to God. They had just been threatened. They raised their voices together to God. And verse 31, when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. You see how they responded? They went to God. They trusted God. They, they cast their, their care, their need on him. They looked to him and they believed that he could give them the boldness that they needed. And then what did they do? Look at chapter 4. What did they do? It says at the end of verse 31, after they had prayed, they began to speak the word of God boldly. You see it? Trust God and do good. Trust God and just keep doing what he told you to do. As a church, we trust God and we continue to do what he has called us to do regardless of the opposition. Peter would later, would later write in the verses up here on the screen, 1 Peter 4.19, let those who suffer according to God's will, look what he says, entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing what is good. Notice he says, those who suffer according to God's will. What he's saying is, if you're suffering because you're doing good, if you're su- not because you've, you've broken the law, not because you're a thief and they're putting you in jail, right? We're not talking about that, he's saying. If you suffer because of the will of God, if you suffer because you're simply doing the will of God, following God, doing the mission, doing, uh, living a life that honors and obeys God, if you're living that kind of a life and in the process you suffer opposition for that, you entrust yourself to your Creator. And you keep doing what is good. The word entrust in that verse, do you see it? It means something of making a deposit. Depositing something of value with someone you trust. If you had $5,000 and you wanted to make a deposit, would you just find some guy walking down the street and say, hey, I'd like to make a deposit. I've got $5,000 here. Would you hold on to this for me and keep it safe? Will he hold on to it for you? I should hope so. I mean, if it were me, and you're like, okay, sure, right? Would you ever see me again? (laughs) Oh, boy, she doesn't have much confidence in her pastor. I would hope so. Now, you don't do that. You don't go find some random guy out there. Where do you go? You go to Chase Bank. You go to whatever your bank is. You go to someone you trust, right? 
That's the idea. Suffering, when we suffer, when we face opposition, we trust God with it. We know that we're going to face it and we just trust God with it. He is our creator. So what are we doing? We're keeping calm and we're carrying, we're carrying on. Remember that. Because we're going to face some opposition this week, I'm sure, in one way or another. And at times we might feel like we're frightened and we're afraid and we, we're not sure what to do. But I hope that you'll keep calm and carry on still doing what is right. Amen? Trust God and do what is good. Don't be surprised or scared. Trust God and do what is good. Number three, stand together in love. This is what the early church does, right? They didn't turn against each other. They didn't start fighting with each other. They stood together. Church, this is something for us to get a hold of and to learn and remember, right? When we face opposition as a church, we need to come together and stand together. You see, what happens oftentimes is, is that when a community faces a challenge, oftentimes the members within that community turn on each other. And rather than turning on each other, the early church, they stood together. It says in Acts chapter 4 and verse 23, after they, that's Peter and John, were released, what did they do? They went right to their own people, it says. And they reported everything the chief priests and elders had said to them. And then in verse 32 of chapter 4, it says, Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and of one mind. They got together, they prayed together, and they continued on with one heart and with one mind. Peter would later write this. This is 1 Peter 4, 8 through 10. It's on the screen behind me. Above all, maintain constant love for one another. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Just as each one has received a gift, a gift use it to serve others as good stewards of the, of the varied grace of God. You see what he's saying? Yeah, we're facing opposition. So what? Keep loving each other. Keep serving one another. Continue to use your spiritual gifts, how God has blessed you, what he has given you, Use it as a good steward. Use it for the edification of those around you. Serve others. You see, church, love and our love for one another is meant to be evidence of our faith. It's meant to prove to the world that, yeah, we really are disciples of Jesus Christ. It's our, it's our love for one another, Jesus said, that, that by our love, Everyone would know that we are his disciples. You see, our love for one another in the face of opposition, there is nothing better of a witness than when believers express love for each other. And there's no poorer witness than when we don't. And so Paul, Peter says, maintain constant Love, maintain constant love. So what do we do? We stand together in love when we face opposition. Number four, I've got six of these, so I'm almost done here. Number four, love your enemies too. Don't just love each other. 
Love your enemies. Peter, what does he do in chapter 4? You there? Look at chapter 4 and verse 17. What does Peter do? You see it? He's preaching. He's explaining to these men, the Sanhedrin, he's telling them of his faith. He's speaking to the religious authorities in a, in a way he wants them to repent. He wants them to be forgiven. In chapter 4 and verse 19, he's not trying to pay back evil for evil. He wants them to be saved. Peter would later write this. This is on the screen, 1 Peter 3, 9. Not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing since you were called for this so that you may inherit a blessing. Church, we have to beware of developing or adopting this us versus them mentality. It's us and it's them, right? We, we, we are, we're not to have that mentality. It's never us versus them. It's Jesus for everybody. Amen? Jesus for everybody. He wants every person to be saved, even those who are standing in opposition against the gospel. He wants them to be saved. It's grace for all. It's truth for all. And the best way to imitate Christ is to treat others well, especially those who are opposing us especially those who are mistreating, the, mistreating us, especially those who are abusing us, who are wronging us. How many of you have a favorite verse of the Bible? You have some favorite verses, right? We all do. You know, I've never heard anyone quote either of these two verses as their favorite verse. You ready? This is Jesus speaking. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I've never heard it. Luke chapter 6, but I say unto you, love your enemies, do what is good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. Nobody's favorite verse. After all, who wants to do that anyway? Nobody wants to do that. We love our friends? Absolutely. Love our family? You betcha. Love the people who treat us nicely and with respect? Absolutely. Love our enemies? Hmm, let me check the original Greek and see if that's what Jesus meant there. Is that really, what, what word did he use for love? You know, maybe we can break that down and figure out a way to, to get around that thing. No, you know what he meant? He meant what he said. Love your enemies. The early church knew it and they acted like it. Tertullian, uh, who I quoted a moment ago, he noted that the way Christians courageously died for their faith, it spoke to people, it spoke to the masses. The Christians didn't ridicule their opponents. They didn't seek revenge. Instead, they did acts of charity. They cared for the poor. They cared for the widows and orphans, the elderly, the slaves, the unwanted children that were left to die. It was the Christians who were caring for them. Emperor Julian, who is not a fan of Christianity, remarked this. He said, not only do these Christians look after their own poor, but ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for help that we should render them. You hear what he was saying? 
He was saying these Christians, man, they, they love everybody. They love people. They help take care of people. Even though they're being persecuted, opposed, and put to death, they still act with love. Has there ever been a time in our society where we need the love of Jesus to permeate our community? Is, is, is there any more time, more of a time, than there is right now? I've had the news on here and there over the last week, and I'm telling you what, man, it's like, my heart is heavy for, for our nation and for people. Man, there's so much hurt and confusion and woe out there. And, and it's, we know the truth. We have the grace of Jesus. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's up to us to love people and and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we truly desire to be like Jesus, that's what it's going to take. If we're going to reach our community for Jesus, it's going to take us having a big heart for people. And especially those who are hurting among us. By among us, I mean not only inside the room, but outside of the room, and you know where that starts? You know where loving our enemy starts? It starts right here. It starts inside of us. Before you can show any outward display of loving your enemies, there has to be an inward transformation that takes place in us first. In other words, you can't love someone who is against you If you can't, the problem isn't them. The problem is us. Follow? You follow that? If we can't love those who are opposing us, it's not them, it's us. It's our own heart that is the problem. When when we reflect on the nature and the character and the life of Jesus Christ, he demonstrated how much he loved those who were against him. Remember when he was on the cross, what did he say? Father... Forgive them, right? Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Church, this can flow from a heart that has been transformed by the love of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. And just so you know that it's not just something Jesus did, that it's something that you can do and that I can do, let me remind you of Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and 7. Because here is a guy who is being stoned to death simply for preaching the name Jesus, wanting people to be forgiven of their sins, wanting people to have a personal relationship with God, just wanting the best for people, and he's being stoned to death. And you know what he prayed before he died? He prayed the same as Jesus on the cross. Father, please don't hold this sin against them. How is it that Stephen was able to do that? He was a man who was full of the Holy Spirit and his life had been transformed on the inside. And so church, that's where it's got to start. It's got to start with heart transformation. If we don't give a a hoot about the world around us or our community around us and all we want to do is close the doors and hunker down, you know, cover the kids' eyes and ears and, and, and block the world out, the hurting world out, we are missing what Jesus has told us to do. He's given us a mission, and it's not find a nice little church and have a nice little building and play church. No, it is go out there and reach a community of lost, hurting people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. See their lives transformed. 
but we're never going to see their lives transformed if ours aren't. It's got to start in us. If Stephen could do it, so can we. So can we. Have you ever read the book Through the Gates of Splendor? Elizabeth Elliot? You've heard her story? Jim Elliot, her husband, and five other families, they moved to Ecuador in the 1950s, and they were trying to reach this remote village, this remote tribe, and so they tried to establish contact with them and build trust, and, and it all led up to one day, Jim and Nate and the other guys, I think five guys flew in, and they were all murdered, run through with spears by these, these native men, on the beach, they died. You know, even after all that happened, Elizabeth resolved to be a part of reaching those people who had killed her husband. Became her mission. And in time, she lived among those very people and shared the good news of Christ's atoning work with those people. How did that happen? She was able to forgive and to love them. And they were, many of them were saved. Many of their lives were transformed. Church, we have to love our enemies. We need to stop thinking of the world as our enemy. We need to start thinking of our of our world as people for whom Jesus died and loving people as Christ loves them. Number five, I'm, I'm way out of time here. Number five, two more. Boldly share your hope. Don't we see that in Acts 4, 5, 6, 7? Right? I mean, here they are facing all this opposition and what is Peter doing, man? He's, he's preaching. <laughs> they threaten him. They flog them, they threaten them, throw them in jail. What are they doing the next day? They're back, they're back out there. You know, sometimes we are so scared to open our mouth and to say peep to anyone about Jesus when, you know, of all the people I've ever told, talked to about the gospel and witnessed to, I've been threatened a couple times just by, you know, cold turkey going up to people and talking to people on their property and things. You know, I, we, we, would, we would go into South Providence. When I was a teenager, man, we would go into, my, our youth pastor would take us into sketchy, sketchy places. And we would witness the people, you know. But the truth is, I've never had anybody hold a gun to me or a knife to me. I mean, it could happen, I guess. But, but the truth is, it's, are, has your life ever been threatened as, just simply because you're a believer and you're, you're giving the gospel? And yet, we can, we can be so fearful. We ought not be. Let's boldly share our hope. Peter said this later. It's on the screen, 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16. Be ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, look what he says. Do this, please take note, with what? 
gentleness and reverence. We don't have to go out there with picket signs and get all angry and in people's faces, right? I don't recommend that you get into a heated debate with someone, you know, over Jesus and, and, and the gospel. Gentleness and reverence. Live a life that loves others and loves your enemies. A, love that, a, a, a life that is kind. A life that exudes Jesus Christ. And people will ask you what's going What's different about you? And be ready to do what? To give them a reason for the hope that's in you. That's your open door to talk about Jesus. You say, well, I don't know what to say. I wouldn't know what to say. You know, Jesus told the disciples in Matthew 10, he said that when you get hauled in front of these governors and kings and, and you're you're there to bear witness for my name. He says, they'll hand you over, but don't worry about what or how you are to speak for you will be given what to say in that hour because it isn't you, but the spirit of your father that's speaking through you. Just be willing to open your mouth. Just be willing to have a dialogue, a conversation. Just be willing with reverence and respect and love to have a conversation, a dialogue, not a monologue, a dialogue with people. Boldly share your hope. Yes, in the face of opposition. And then number six, you didn't think I'd get here, but I I did. Number six, see the big picture. See the big picture. What's that? It's still, I know, that's what, I just keep preaching until it's dark. We got used to that, didn't we? See the big picture. And I, I see this. When you go to Acts In fact, let me show you one more verse, Acts chapter 8 and verse 4. Here's the big picture, right? All that opposition. Chapter 8 opens up with severe persecution. Saul in verse 3 is ravaging against the church. And it says in verse 4, look what it says. So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. Ha! You see, what Jesus had told him before he ascended, he said, I want you to go back to Jerusalem. I want you away from my spirit. And then I want you to be a witness there. And then where? Judea and Samaria. And then to the uttermost part of the earth. You see what's happening? Here's the big picture. That it was simply because of the opposition, that here the church has grown by thousands in Jerusalem, and now because of opposition, now what is happening? The church is moving forward. The mission is advancing. It is forcing them to go do what Jesus told them to do, going out into Judea, going out into Samaria. And that's what it says in verse 5. Philip went down to a city in Samaria, and he proclaimed the Messiah to them. You see it? How'd that happen? Well, there was some opposition. But that opposition was an opportunity to move forward. Jesus actually said this. He said, they're going to lay their hands on you. They're going to persecute you. They're going to hand you over to the synagogues and prisons. In verse 13 of Luke 21, he says, this will give you an opportunity to bear witness. (laughs) Right? I mean, it's right there. The opposition gives us an opportunity to witness for Christ. 
when we had our city council meeting a couple months ago. Dave and some of you guys were there. Cheryl was there. I think Wendy was there. And it felt hostile in that room. There had to be 150 people in that room who were pretty angry, you know, didn't want to see the project go forward. And uh, I walk in, and one of the ladies there who is an, a social influencer in town walked to me and said, hey, do you want to speak? And I, okay, sure. And somehow I got the last speaking spot to the council. And about halfway through this meeting, I just went back in the bathroom, and I'm like, God, you got to help me. I don't know what to say to these people. You got you to gotta, you gotta give me wisdom. I, I don't know what to say. And God did that. It was an opportunity to say to our city council, hey, look, we support this, and we're going to love our neighbors, and we're going to do our best to treat our neighbors in these apartments well and to love them to Jesus and, and to do everything we can to support their families. We had an opportunity to bear witness of Christ's name. How did we get that opportunity? It was the face of opposition. You know, as we read through the scripture, we find that over and over, opposition gives us opportunities. Opportunities to grow, opportunities for eternal reward, Jesus says, that we're blessed and that we're going to receive great reward in heaven so we should rejoice and be, and be glad. It's an opportunity. Justin of Rome, known as Justin Martyr, have you heard of him? He said, you can kill us, but you can't hurt us. <laughs> There's Justin of Rome. You can kill us, but you can't hurt us. He was thrown in jail, and he was asked, do you imagine that after your head is cut off, you will go straight to heaven? And Justin said, imagine? I know it. Justin said, in the quotes on the screen, our great desire is to suffer for Christ at whose bar the whole world must appear. You see, one day, we're going to stand before Jesus Christ. We're going to see Jesus face to face, the one who suffered in our place and who took our sin in his body. We're going to stand before him face to face. And for those who know him, The Bible says that there will be reward for those who were persecuted for his name's sake. Well, Justin Martyr, after that, was beheaded. And he went right into the presence of Jesus. We're going to see him face to face, church, right? You see, for 2,000 years, God's people have been facing opposition, and yet the church moved forward. Guys like Justin Martyr and countless others. And if you've never read church history and read about men like Justin Martyr and Tertullian and Polycarp and Origen and, and so many others and read their stories and read of their faith and their courage, I, I implore you to do that. But the truth is they're dead. Well, they're with Jesus. This is our turn. This is our turn. I like what Solomon said. He said, he said that a dead dog, uh, excuse me, a, a living dog is better 
than a dead lion. Ecclesiastes. A living dog is better than a dead lion, right? We, we may not have the faith and boldness and courage as Peter and John and these guys, the Justin martyrs. But those lions are, they're not here, we are. And so let's follow Christ. Let's do the mission, no matter what opposition we face. Amen? Could we do that? I don't know what opposition you're facing in your life this week, but I hope that you'll go back and that you'll look at 1 Peter. Maybe this week the, the homework should be read 1 Peter. Read the, the epistle of 1 Peter. Read it through every day, just every day. Read it through in one sitting and just let God remind you and help you and encourage you on how to handle opposition and adverse, adversity. Adversity. 